Welcome to another inspirational message from Northwest Church. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information on what your next step may be, please visit our website at northwestchurch.com.au. Yes, okay. Well, I'm Trish, if you don't know me, and um, I hope to get to meet most of you after the service. Um, who's had a fabulous Christmas and New Year and eaten way too much food? Woohoo! Yes, me too. Lots and lots of food. Um, I think most of us like the idea of a banquet table, don't we? We um, banquets are about good things to be celebrated, like graduations or Christmas or weddings or anniversaries and that type of thing. We dress up for them. We turn up excited to be there. We unbutton a button if necessary. We are going to be at that banquet table. And, uh, and we consider it an honor to be invited, right? Yeah. And the, and the table is kind of um, the heart of the home, isn't it? It's where you gather the people that you love and you sit around there and that's where life happens at the table. It's where relationship happens. Well, um, we're going to look at a passage about a table this morning. Um, It kicks off in 2 Samuel 9 verse 1. And it says, David asked, asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So I feel like we're jumping straight into the middle of a story. So I just want to back up and just give you a little bit of a quick setup here. There's a cast of characters. There's three principal actors introduced in this first verse. Now, if you've grown up in church, these are going to be familiar names to you. But if not, here's what's happening. Saul is the first king of Israel. Okay, so he's, he's the king. Jonathan is his son. And David was Jonathan's best friend. And he was son-in-law to Saul. And he was the next king of Israel. But Saul did not want David on the throne. He forf- um, but Saul forfeited his right to keep the throne by disobeying God, okay? And, uh, and basically, God said to him, uh, the kingdom's been torn from your hands and it's going to be given to someone better than you. Ouch! That's not a statement I think anyone would like to hear. It's, this is, your job's going to be given to someone better than you. Who did God intend that for? Well, it was a boy tending sheep, who his dad didn't even think highly enough to invite to the, di- to the dinner table when the prophet came to town to pick a new king. And that's because God doesn't see things the way that we see things. Phew, right? <laughs> God doesn't see things the way that we see things. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so can I just pause and tell you here this morning that if you've been passed over and excluded and not counted by people, God sees you. He sees you differently. He values you. He loves you. He knows you. He has plans for you, good plans for you. Just ask David. So Saul began to bless David and David began to rise and Saul became jealous of David because he was rising too quickly. And Saul was just so full of insecurity and racked by jealousy. And so he began to scheme how to get rid of David. But no matter what he did, he couldn't succeed to take David down. And Jonathan brings a bit of complexity to this whole relationship, this whole saga, because he and David become best friends. And that's awkward because Jonathan actually sides with David because he sees that God is 
with David, not his dad. And Saul gets so mad, so, so mad about that. He, so mad he even tries to kill Jonathan, which is crazy because he wants Jonathan on the throne, but he can't do that if he's dead. I don't know. Anyway, it's messed up. He's really messed up. Okay, So Jonathan makes David promise that when he is king, that he will look after his family. Because Jonathan understands that if there's going to be a power shift from one dynasty to another, from one family to another, that his family is not going to have favour because he's the son of Saul, right? So um, David promises and then he needs to go on the run for about 10 years. So we don't know that they ever saw each other again after making that exchange of promises, these best friends. And in the meantime, Jonathan dies and eventually Saul dies. And that brings us up to speed with where we're at in verse one. Okay. <laughs> I promise I won't be doing all of that for each verse that we read today. All right. So thinking of that promise, so keep that promise in mind as we read this scripture. All right. So we'll kick off in verse three. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to, shoot, to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Emil in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Emil. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Why is that important? Because uh, there's heaps of people to like do the work for him. So that's like, it's a massive blessing. He's got an entire workforce behind him. So he goes from nothing to something pretty substantial. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Just a reminder there. Not really relevant to everything else that's said. Okay, so you and I, I want you to, um, to just find some similarities between us and Mephibosheth this morning. And by the way, I will trip over that name at least four times. If you could just have grace for me because I tried to shorten it and it just, it sounds like meth. So I don't want to. <laughs> so I'm just going to try to do the whole name. All right. So number one, life had not gone according to plan for this guy. He was five years old when his father died. He was five years old. Can you imagine that? Maybe some of you can. On the same day, his grandfather also died. Remember, his grandfather was King Saul. So he's actually second in line to the throne. 
And now there is a massive regime change. He woke up and the palace was no longer his home. His family were decimated and everything was about to change for this little boy. For many of us, life hasn't also gone according to plan, I'm sure. Maybe not in quite such dramatic fashion and maybe not all in the one day, but we've got stuff that hasn't gone into our life plan, right? It's been added in, much to our objections often. But Mephibosheth wakes up one day and he loses access to a kingdom. It's a big deal. Number two, he's fallen. So 2 Samuel um, chapter 4 verse 4 describes a panic amongst the household staff. So they've just heard that their king is dead. If you've watched any kind of medieval movies, you'll know that like if one family has lost the throne, the other family is coming to the castle to claim it and there's going to be a mess, okay? So um, there's a panic among the household staff. And so Mephibosheth's nanny has grabbed him and he's run, but he's dropped him. she has dropped him. And in that moment, he's become crippled. So he's having a really bad day. He fell, and when that, when that happened, something permanent marked him. And we've all fallen too, right? We've all fallen too. There's a point where we've all fallen short of our own standards, let alone God's standards. And we carry our mistakes with us too. They scar us a little bit. We have calluses. We have bruises. Some are more crippling than others, but none of us escape the reality of the consequence of our sin. And I'm sure for Mephibosheth that between the ages of 5 and 20, where we catch him up in this, in this chapter that we're reading this morning, he wondered if his bloodline would return to the throne. And then as he needed to be carried around for his most basic needs, he would realize that he probably couldn't fulfill the role anyway. His flaw disqualified him now. He was unfit for national service. He was unfit for service in the temple. He was born of a hated family. He was only alive on the generosity of the next king who had never met him and as, for all intents and purposes didn't care about him. So sure, his circumstances were extreme, but have you ever felt like your past or even your present disqualify you? Yeah, I think most of us have been there, right? Please say yes. More than me. Yeah, talk to me. <laughs> Romans 3.23 reminds us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. It's all of us. So we can all identify with him. Well, Mephibosheth was in danger and had nowhere to run. When David asked for this audience... Everyone, including Mephibosheth, assumed that when David asked for descendants of Saul, that it was kind of a let's round them up and execute them kind of thing. Let's, let's remove all threat to my dynasty because that's what kings did to eliminate, eliminate any rival to his line. That's why he says before anything else to Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. It's the first thing he says when, he's, when he comes before him, don't be afraid. Mephibosheth was keenly aware that he was at odds with the king. He was at odds with the king. But the difference, I think, between Mephibosheth and us is that he knew he was unworthy to meet the king. And he recognized the risk that presented to him when faced with someone who had the power to judge him. 
You see, we seem to sometimes forget that we are completely depraved. We are without goodness. Is, is that uncomfortable? I feel uncomfortable when I say that out loud. It is uncomfortable. It can be confronting to acknowledge that we are not the definition of good. Oh, well, how do you know I'm not good? You might be thinking, well, you know, I'm a good person. I have a good heart. But if you were to ask the most good person in the room here today, you should definitely look around and figure out who that is, by the way. Um, <laughs> if we ask them to come up and, and we ask them to bear their soul and we could like somehow play the clips of their best and worst moments through the screen up there, would they volunteer for that? No. I think it would be like either a polite no thank you or a hell no, <laughs> depending. There's some bad stuff in all of us. Can we agree on that? Yeah. Christians call it the sinful nature. And if you're human, guess what? You inherited it. You got it. You know, and th that idea can feel a bit devastating, but it's also completely freeing. Let me tell you why. Because if you can admit you're a sinner, then you can admit you need a saviour. Yeah? When we stand before God to be judged, the question will be asked of us, did we sin or did we not? Not how bad they were, not how many times. Did you sin or did you not? And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin are death. We are at odds with the king. But that's not what God wants for you because he's a good king. He's a good king. Mephibosheth was under no illusion that he was fully dependent on the grace of the king for not only that day, but every day to come, every meal to come. Mephibosheth, like us, was empty, containing none of the qualifying requirements to sit at his table. Yet he was carried there anyway, before the king, where he expected a dangerous outcome. Instead, he was confronted immediately by the goodness and grace of the king. Goodness and grace of the king. There is a good king who wanted to show him kindness, and we have a good king who wants to show us kindness today as well. So here's Mephibosheth. I want you to just like imagine him for a minute. He's prostrate on the ground. He can't use his legs. He's broken, crippled, aware that he can do nothing. He's at the complete mercy of whatever happens next. He brings nothing to the, to the table. He deserves nothing. He says, who am I? He describes himself as a low dog. Who am I? Expecting at any moment to be executed. And the king says to him instead, don't be afraid. I want to show you kindness because I made a promise. And here we see a covenant being introduced to a third party. It actually had nothing to do with Mephibosheth. The king said, I'm going to show you kindness, Mephibosheth, not because of anything that you have done or not done, but because of my covenant promise to someone else, to your father, Jonathan. Because I made a promise to him, I'm going to treat you like a son, and you don't have to do anything to deserve it. So he was given a royal seat at the royal table. No, you are not going to be executed. You were brought here so you could be adopted into the family, treated like a son. In fact, if you want to stay here in Jerusalem and you want to, we'll make a space for you at the palace. From now on, you have this seat at my table, this permanent place. Your name tag is on it. No one else gets to sit there. From now on, you have this permanent 
place. And he who lived in Lodabar, Lodabar, a place that means no pasture, a place that was so remote, Luke Skywalker wouldn't even go there. And yet he's here now in Jerusalem. He's been brought from nothing, brought from nothing into the capital city, sitting at the table of the king with people around him and food that's lavishly prepared for him. And the opportunity, once the table has been cleared off and the coffee and the dessert is served and everyone's relaxed and to tell the funny stories and the inside jokes and laugh until your belly hurts and you're crying, just the best parts of life is all happening around him at that table. Good foods, real relationships, rich life. That's a picture of what is being offered to us. So let's take a look at Mephibosheth's choices in that moment. Choice number one, his first choice obviously was whether or not to accept the kindness of the king. The king was extending an invitation. He wasn't standing there with guards pointing spears at him saying, sit at the table, be blessed. (laughs) You know, it's an invitation. It's an invitation. And he could have said, I spit on your invitation. He could have said, I wish to go back to my hovel and live in an existence that does not require the mercy of the likes of you. He could have said that. Yeah, right. As if, right? But surely, if that ridiculous reaction had been the case, someone like Zeba would have stepped in and said, Mephibosheth, you may not see the great benefit, but I can Let me explain it to you. Ask me any questions you have. I need to tell you the far-reaching consequences of the choice that you are making. They extend even beyond you to your family, to your household. Don't just say no. Let me do whatever it takes to compel you to make the right decision. Don't you think that someone in his world would have said that? It would have been crazy for Mephibosheth to turn from that offer. And yet there are thousands upon thousands of people, men, women, and children in our city that are turning that option down every day. And it may be that they don't even know it is an option. Church, may it never be the case that we are so happy with our privileged and honored position at the table that we shrink back from compelling others to make the right and wise choice and join us. So Mephibosheth doesn't make that choice. Tick. Like some of you in this room, when confronted with the grace of Jesus Christ, there was no turning back. It was a yes, I want that. But Mephibosheth's next choices are things that could have kept him with life. He could have had a seat at the table, but he wouldn't have enjoyed it very much. And so I want to speak to you about that right now because that's a whole different level of decision-making for us to do. Choice number two, Mephibosheth could have had a sense of entitlement. As he looked around that table, he could have thought to himself, well, yeah, this should have been mine anyway. I look at Joab over there, first counsel to the king. Look at him. If my grandfather had stayed on the throne... Or if my father were there now, Joah would be dead and that would be my seat. Mephibosheth could have considered all the ways that actually he was worthy on his own. Sounds crazy, but Christians, we can fall into this trap too. 
When we start to judge people who have no understanding or acceptance of Jesus, it's usually a symptom that we feel like we're starting to have it all together for ourselves. We forget we were just like them. And if not that, we can start to think, hey, I don't know that I actually have my rightful place at the table. I, I want your seat, Sonia, it looks nicer. I think you're closer to Jesus than me, so I want that seat. Can you just hop out of the way? I want to do what you're doing and that blessing that God's given you, I want that for me. I feel like you and I need to switch places, you know? Mephibosheth had a choice. Do I accept this grace and unmerited favor as the gift that it is? Or do I taint it with the thoughts that I somehow deserve something? It is grace that puts us at that table. It is grace that puts us at that table. So do we accept that grace and unmerited favor as the gift that it is? Or do we taint it with the thoughts that somehow we deserve to be there? Choice number three, imagine if Mephibosheth never walked in the fullness that was laid out for him. Imagine that if every time he sat at the table, he felt guilty about being there. Imagine if every time he sat, he had one eye on the food and one eye on the king. When's he going to turn? When's he going to consider me a freeloader? When's he going to cut me loose? When's he going to have had enough of me? When's he going to realize how much effort he's pouring into having me at the table? Like, he's got to do all this work to keep me there. When's he going to add it up and go, oh, you're too much? The problem there is that when we look at our situation through the lens of who we were, through the lens of our insecurities or our instabilities, we get a skewed view, not only of the situation, but also the king. We change our view of the king. When we dwell on our guilt and shame, our inadequacy, we will never walk in the fullness. We will never enjoy our seat at the table. It's a picture of family and fun and relationship and joy. But if we're sitting there just focusing on why we don't deserve to be there, we're actually not only robbing ourselves of what's going on around us, but we're also changing our picture of the king because we're imagining he feels that way too. And he doesn't. I can prove it. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 8. This is the message version just to kind of, because it's a familiar verse, I just want you to read it from a different perspective for a minute. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it all of us, doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his, on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the next, to shower grace and kindness upon us in Jesus Christ. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. 
It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. How cool is that? We are put in the presence of the King. And all he wants to do is shower us with grace and kindness and enjoy our company. And it has nothing to do with what we did or did not do before sitting at the table. Here's the thing. If Mephibosheth had kept his eyes on his feet, all he would have seen was the impairment, the floor, the thing that kept him from being able to walk right. And I'm sure that was a moment when there was a moment when Mephibosheth thought to himself, you know, I've been an outcast my whole life, but no one can see my crippled legs when I'm seated at the table. No one can see the floor when you're seated at the king's table. When I'm at the table, I'm just one of the king's sons, just like everybody else. I think there's people in here that need to hear that for themselves this morning. Mephibosheth knew his feet were crippled, but he kept his eyes on the king. And he savoured being able to be at that table in whatever capacity he was allowed to be. You know, this picture is a picture of God wanting you to have that with him. And Jesus shows us the extreme lengths he will go to in order for you to have it. What did it take for us to be invited to the table? It took God's own son to be born in a stable, living a life where he was doubted and ridiculed and mocked and hated, dying, surrounded by criminals on the cross, on the third day rising and ascending into heaven, sending his spirit into the world to seek you out, to find you, to invite you to the table. That's what it took for your invitation. Not because he's mad at you, but because he wants to bless you. He has good plans for you. And he wants to be your father. And he wants you to be sons and daughters. But I don't deserve it. Yep, that's the point. It's for Jesus' sake. It's for Jesus' sake. And he wants to adopt you into his family and dine at his royal table. Jesus extends an invitation to us to join into the fold of his family. And he's done everything necessary for us to have a seat pulled up at his table. Ephesians 2 verse 6 says says it this way. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. The first question I want you to ask yourself is, did you know you're invited to the table? Did you know that it's, it doesn't require anything of you? I, I want to give you this morning the opportunity to say yes to that invitation, if that's you. God loved you so much that through none of your own doing, but unable to, to stand a separation from you, he sent his only son, Jesus, that whoever, whoever 
the crippled, the lame, the infirm, the liar, the cheat, the thief, the adulterer, the consumer of porn, the sinful, which is everyone. We established that earlier, all of us, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Are you ready to put your faith in Jesus Christ? What He did? Are you ready to make Him Lord and Saviour of your life? So if that's you this morning, I just want everybody's eyes closed. Just provide a little bit of privacy. If that's you this morning and you want to accept this incredible invitation to a table that brings you into the family fold of the God of heaven who created you and has saved you, just raise your hand for me this morning so I know that I'm praying for you. So just give you just a moment. Thank you. So there's hands going up. If that's you this morning, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you did everything required to invite us to be part of your family. God, we acknowledge that you are our creator and that you sent your son to die on a cross to save me from my sins and to extend an invitation. We thank you this morning, Lord God. We accept you into our lives, into our hearts, Lord. Show us how to make you Lord and Saviour of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring faith or a follower of Jesus, there is a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to northwestchurch.com.au. And thanks again for listening.